0: banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
1: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
2: Ivanka Trump was the final witness in the civil lawsuit that could reshape the Trump real estate empire. She has been in her father's inner circle in both business as an executive vice president at the family's Trump organization and then in politics as a senior White House advisor. But she testified that she had no role in his personal financial statements, which New York Attorney General Letitia James claims were fraudulently inflated and deceived banks and lenders. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Patricia Hurtado, who's been covering the trial and was in the courtroom for Ivanka Trump's testimony. The first question I have is, did Ivanka throw her father under the bus in any way?
3: No, she was a very measured witness. Now, she is not a defendant anymore but she had been at one point until a state appeals court earlier this year dismissed the case against her saying the claims brought by the state were too old because she was already out of the business working for her father in Washington, so she was no longer part of the Trump company. She did not throw her father under the bus, even in the tiniest way. She was basically a very measured controlled witness who did not have a very strong memory. (laughs) And her tact to me seemed to be that she would answer questions posed to her by the New York Attorney General saying, do you remember that you signed this document? Or do you remember that you were involved in this transaction? And her answer was a basically repetitive, I don't remember it happened, but I remember you showed it to me last year when you interviewed me. So basically, the totality of her memory was limited to, I only saw this once before when you showed it to me, but I have absolutely no memory of the actual transaction. So there was an interesting moment in which on direct, when she was questioned by the New York Attorney General, she was asked about this transaction having to do with Deutsche Bank financing. And at one point, her father was thinking of getting equity financing in the project to A bid, it's called a request for proposal to the federal government to redo the old post office and turn a moribund office building into a luxury five star hotel. And in 2011, and you see documents where her dad's talking about possibly doing a deal and that Tom Barrick of Colony Capital, the private equity firm, was going to be with her father in a sort of a joint partnership where they would do this deal and they'd do the redevelopment. And she professed not to know anything about it or have any memory. And then later on, on I guess would be called cross, under friendly questioning by her father's lawyers, she suddenly remembered all these details. In great detail. And she remembered meetings and she remembered what she said and she remembered meeting with the federal government and she remembered comparing the old post office to the Plaza Hotel. And at one point, the state lawyer turns to the judge and said, quote, your honor, she doesn't have a present recollection. She just spent three minutes describing the Plaza Hotel and how it's similar to this project. You know, and yet she basically had no memory of what I was asking her a few minutes ago. She was
2: the point person in establishing a lending relationship with Deutsche Bank's private wealth management arm. So she was
3: testifying about how did it come about this relationship with Deutsche Bank. And she basically testifies that her husband, her father and the Trump org had a prior relationship with Deutsche Bank in the real estate section but that her husband, Jared Kushner, introduced her to the private wealth management group in Deutsche Bank, which gave her what the attorney general claims are more favorable terms based on financial documents and statements of financial condition that were submitted that were fraudulent. So the New York attorney general alleges that what the Trump Org gave Deutsche Bank to get these more favorable terms were fraudulent because they were inflated values and inflated statements.
2: So she was the point person, they renegotiated, but yet she said she wasn't involved and had no knowledge of his personal financial statements?
3: It was more like she said she was not involved, she never saw them per se, she assumed they were accurate, anything she did and she was involved in, she assumed were accurate. But she distanced herself from the whole scenario, how did these documents get created? It was not up to her, it was her father's business with his people. And one of the interesting things about the post office is New York Attorney General yesterday, the big project, and it was like her claim to fame of this very successful deal she did, was um, the post office. But that the Government Services Administration, which is the federal agency that administers and oversees development and upkeep of federal buildings, is the agency that the Trump org had to give this request for proposal, like a bid, of how they were going to do the building over. And we saw documents that the Attorney General showed her there was called a GSA, because that's the Government Services Administration, deficiency letter, where they pointed out that they were concerned about incorrect or incomplete information provided by the Trump organization, including whether the statements applied with the general accounting principles and that the statement of financial conditions were incomplete. And she did not remember. There was something done. Maybe it was got given to her, but it was basically, you know, her voice. According to her, was on a much more a higher level. She was at the top over this massive project, and she basically left the the Trump people to deal with it. So if there was any issue, it really wasn't her, and she she did try to keep distancing herself with this deficiency. She also
2: did follow the lead of her father and brothers in contending that the family business has over delivered on every metric. Oh, and that
3: was. One of her key, she was like the spokesmodel for the Trump family business, that everything her father did, and certainly any projects she was involved with. And there were three main projects that she seemed to have the, a lot of dealings with. That was the Durrell Golf Course in Florida, the post office, old post office in Washington, D.C., and this Trump Tower uh, hotel development that was built in Chicago. So she said that everything that the Trump did regarding those three projects that involved her prior to her going to join her father in D.C. and help work in his administration had been over delivered in every metric.
2: Pat, she didn't hurt her father, but did she help the attorney general's
3: case? You know, this case is I think I've said before, you know. The AG has to prove their case, and you're not going to get the smoking gun out of the people that are defendants or their relatives. And that's what the Trump family is. It's a bunch of people that are in this company, and they work for their father, and Donald Trump is the top of the of pyramid. And um, the AG has to prove its case by calling these people, getting them to give their version of what reality is and what the evidence is, and confront them with whatever documents that are there, And then the judge has to intuit from that whether or not they're telling the truth and did the documents prove otherwise. So I believe they had to call her basically just to say, yes, you're right, I did sign that document. Yes, I did attest that it was honest. Yes, I did sign this along with my father, and that is my father's signature. And yes, he submitted it, attesting to the U.S. government that his statements of financial condition were uh, sound and accurate. So basically, that's all they really need her for, right? Because they can basically say, yes, that's a legit Trump organization document and that the defense can't say otherwise. And then they prove it through other means, including evidence that undercuts the claims of the defendants and their relatives. And she
2: gets off by saying, I signed that, I did that, but I wasn't involved in preparing or looking at his personal financial statements.
3: Yeah, she distanced herself. Where Everything I signed, I assumed, was accurate and, and truthful. And I wasn't involved in the g- nitty-gritty details. That was not her terminology, but she was not so granularly involved in these day-to-day instances of who actually created these statements of financial condition.
2: So the defense begins Monday, and they said they're going to take into the middle of next month?
3: Yeah, originally this trial was supposed to go till December 22nd, which is creepingly close to Christmas Day and the Christmas holidays. And now defense said they are going to start on Monday. They were actually asked to start today because the attorney general rested yesterday and finished their direct case. And now they say they hope to finish by December 15th. The rumor going around is that possibly Don Jr. will come back on Monday. And the defense has claimed that they want to call Trump back on their own case. It's unclear if he will, though.
2: Well, Pat, it may be a long trial, but it certainly seems like an interesting one. Thank you so much for bringing that inside look from the courtroom. That's Bloomberg Legal Reporter Patricia Hurtado.
0: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna HealthCare. I call it the wheel. Hmm. I don't think so. What does it do? It it rules. Yeah, so does a bagel, okay? A bagel you can eat.
4: One of the worst ideas I've ever heard.
1: Like I was saying, it's FTX. It's a safe and easy way to get into crypto.
3: Yeah,
1: I don't
4: think so. And I'm never wrong about this stuff.
2: Never. Remember that Larry David commercial for FTX that had them laughing at the Super Bowl in 2022? And there was also Tom Brady touting FTX in commercials. Giselle Bundchen, Steph Curry, and Shaquille O'Neal, among others. Well, investors who claim they lost billions in the collapse of FTX are trying to pin the blame not just on Sam Bankman-Fried and his inner circle, but also on the celebrities who were paid to endorse it, as well as bankers, accountants, and lawyers who propped up the crypto exchange's legitimacy. Joining me is Braden Perry, a former federal regulatory enforcement attorney and a partner at Kenny Hertz Perry. So this is a class action lawsuit. Tell us about it.
1: Yeah, so this is a lawsuit that was brought by a uh, number of individuals who were their investors or had some sort of financial interest in FTX. And uh, they brought it against a number of various entities, including celebrity endorsers, accountants, the actual members of FTX itself, as well as others. So it's a wide-ranging case that essentially boils down to FTX was falsely providing information to the public and the public somehow either invested or had some sort of financial interest in FTX and therefore were harmed.
2: So let's start with the celebrities because that's where everyone starts.
1: Right.
2: <laughs> so, and those advertisements by Larry David and Tom Brady, the commercials were played at the beginning of SBF's trial. So what does the law require of celebrity endorsers?
1: So generally the law requires not much. And What it requires is that the celebrity endorser knows what the product is and how it works. And two, that generally uh, there's some sort of disclaimer uh, ordinarily at the bottom of the advertisement or elsewhere. that indicates celebrity endorser is a paid endorser for that product as well as the truthfulness. And so the endorser cannot provide information that's false or misleading to the public.
2: So then does that mean that Jennifer Garner actually has to use the drugstore creams she claims she uses?
1: Generally, that's the case, and so you'll see these advertisements with uh, certain restaurants where celebrities are at or certain products that they're using, and it, it's not an exclusive use, and so it can be a very high level. So if Jenna Garner has used a, a product that's been provided to her, she can certainly endorse that product, and so it's not a, a lifelong or a over-the-top type of use requirement, but generally, yeah, if, if a celebrity endorser is going to endorse a product that celebrity endorser should be using that product.
2: So does that mean that Tom Brady and Larry David and all the others should have been invested in FTX?
1: Yeah, I don't know if they should have been invested in the FTX. Obviously, they should have known what FTX is and what it does. And that would likely be their exchange of choice if they were going to be part of the crypto movement, not necessarily a needed part of that movement.
2: That's why I'm wondering, when sophisticated investors didn't know about FTX and the government found out much later, how are celebrities supposed to know?
1: Yeah, that's the big question. That's going to be the legal question, is what did the celebrities know? What influence do they have uh, on these investments? And that's really the crux of the, the legal argument. In this case, the class action is so wide with all the different entities associated with FTX, you know, the accountant, Stan beckman Fried's one of the defendants, all these celebrity endorsers, everyone is involved. And so there's going to be from the defense side, lots of finger pointing as to who knew what and when and where and how. And so that's really going to be what the plans need to prove is whether or not these celebrity endorsers were intricate in this false and misleading product.
2: Some of the lawyers for the celebrities are saying that the investors have no valid claim against them because the advertisements and sponsorships they were involved in didn't specifically encourage anyone to deposit money in FTX accounts. That seems weird uh, because that's what the ad is for, right? Also that they never pitched the accounts at issue in the SBF case. Do those sound like typical defenses?
1: They sound like typical defenses. Whether or not they will be uh, successful is is another story. The defense teams have several different lines of defense. As you mentioned, you know they weren't specific to the actual accounts. They didn't provide terms or conditions of the accounts. They weren't detailing what the accounts could or could not do. And so that's a general of defense to to the claims. However, they knew or should have known that there was misleading information by not providing some of that information about these accounts, and that can be counterproductive to their case. Also, if I'm sitting on the defense table and I see that the the main group, the head of FTX, has been convicted of crimes, I'm certainly pointing to that saying, hey, these people were committing crimes, were victims just as much as you were.
2: Yeah, so the Sam Bankman freed conviction and the guilty pleas of his inner circle should be helpful to the defendants here. Now, some of the other targets of the lawsuit are professional advisors ranging from an accounting firm, investment firm, and a bank. Those seem like more reasonable defendants to me.
1: Yeah, and and they should be. And ordinarily, when you find and you look at the past history of massive frauds in finance, uh, Madoff is the best picture of that, there is still ongoing litigation involving accountants, uh, professional individuals who had some part of his scheme. That's the case here. You know, Obviously the accountants, the investment firms, all of these pieces were, were part of the ongoing massive dollars that FTX was bringing in and maintaining during its lifetime. And those are the traditional defendants you'd see celebrity endorsers, frankly, you don't see that often. And I think that, you know, obviously there have been a group that have settled uh, just because likely they didn't want to be bothered with the litigation nor part of the litigation. And there's a, a valid reason to settle and get out. But I think the ones that are still in there have uh, relatively valid defenses that one, they were victims to and two that their endorsements had no no input on what the actual underlying fraud of FTX was about.
2: Last year a federal judge dismissed a lawsuit from investors that accused Kim Kardashian, boxer Floyd Mayweather, and others of endorsing a cryptocurrency known as Ethereum Max. So I mean that could happen here, but is there a lot of pressure on the celebrities to settle?
1: So it's a big gamble and litigation in the end is a gamble. You can spend a lot of money uh, trying to defend yourself and either get dismissed through summary judgment, through motion to dismiss through other type of non-trial uh, activity. And it's still at the end of the day going to cost you money. And so there's a lot of of times, and you know, when I'm I'm dealing with litigation and my clients, I talk to them about the financial aspects of taking something to trial. You know, what what will that cost? Number one, and what is the actual potential cost from a, an adverse decision at trial? And a lot of times, you know, you find a a middle ground with the other side from a litigation standpoint, where uh, it makes more sense to settle and move on um, as opposed to to trying to defend yourself months and months down the road, it takes an emotional toll. It takes a financial toll. Litigation is not fun, and uh, many times people not even will. for lawyers. Not e- well. Some of these lawyers, I think, are probably having a good time with this, but it's certainly from a defendant or plaintiff standpoint. There's a lot that goes into it, and it's certainly you know when when I have large cases that involve a long time of litigation, it's not easy on on either defendants or plaintiffs. It, it takes a lot of emotional toll from individuals when you're dealing with litigation day in and day out.
2: It certainly does, not to mention the cost of litigation. As you mentioned, Bernie Madoff, the investor suits played out for well over a decade, still some playing out. Do you think the SBF case is even more complicated to unwind than the Madoff?
1: Yeah, I do. I, you know, we've been talking strictly about this. This one plaintiff case involves a number of celebrity endorsers. You have to remember that the criminal case is essentially over. There will be appeals. There will be other issues in this, although I don't think many of those appeal issues. He was convicted. I think he'll be sentenced. and I don't think any appeals will be successful. Uh, then you got the regulatory action. So you got the CFTC. you got the SEC. Ordinarily, within these parallel criminal cases, those cases likely will be settled because there's not much else to go after. The big issue is going to be bankruptcy receiverships in the different jurisdictions and trying to claw back as much of this lost money as possible to provide to investors. So that's going to be the main focus for the next decade is the receivership action to claw back all this individual funds from all these various entities. And then you'll have these civil cases that are trying to find those that may not have exposure otherwise to so these celebrity endorsers those types of things and so it's going to be complicated and the fact that the crypto wasn't regulated like madoff's ponzi scheme was there's no central regulator you got the sec you got the cftc that are part of this but unlike madoff where you could Point directly at the SEC. There's really no nexus of jurisdiction between anyone, so it's going to take a long time. You know, the FTX had offices all over the place. There's multiple jurisdictions. It will take a while to unwind what this has become, and it could be could be longer than what Madoff looked at.
2: And at the sentencing of Sam Bankman-Fried and the three people who flipped, will the judge order restitution?
1: The way it generally works when it comes to parallel criminal slash regulatory slash liquidation proceedings is anything the government gets. And so as part of the sentencing for for Sam Beckman-Fried, for Carolyn Ellison, for Wang, for all of these individuals, there'll be a restitution element as their sentence. And that will go into the bucket of the receiver. And So you'll likely see any ill-gotten gains these individuals received will be part of that restitution order under the sentencing that will flow uh, into the receivership action that will be part of that bucket to provide to investors. So yeah, they will likely have large restitution positions as part of their sentencing.
2: Are there more of these class action lawsuits, or has this one been certified as a class, do you know?
1: When it comes to all of these different actions, um, there's lots of priority. And the priority, number one, was the criminal case. And while a criminal case is ongoing, Generally, all the civil cases are stayed due to a number of different evidentiary issues, issues with with certain constitutional rights, those types of things. That's the case in the Florida action. At this point in time, there's been ongoing discovery about that class action. There's not been a decision to certify the class action as of yet, but I do know that there's a number of different motions, a number of different uh, procedural elements that have been put on hold while the criminal case was ongoing. Now that the criminal case is over, I think all of these courts are going to get back in full gear to be addressing all of these issues now. I mean, there's going to be a number of evidentiary issues from the trial. The vast government investigation could be a treasure trove of information for the plaintiffs when it comes to these types of things. And so the courts are now going to have to face that issue and begin moving again procedurally on these cases. Obviously, these are interesting times that we live in when it comes to crypto, and and I think this is a another indication that at some point there needs to be some sort of regulation to ensure that this doesn't happen again. But it's been interesting in the process, and I think uh, you know several years ago, looking at this, you wouldn't think that uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, who had provided money to politicians, to businesses. I mean, FTX had its name on. Every umpire's <laughs> jersey in Major League Baseball. So you wouldn't have thought of this, and now we're here. So it's been an interesting time, and I think it will be certainly interesting for the next few years and more and seeing how this all plays out.
2: A long road ahead. Thanks so much, Braden. That's Braden Perry of Kenny Hertz
0: Perry. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare.
2: Despite WeWork's extraordinary fall from grace, the company is attempting a comeback that starts in New Jersey bankruptcy court, where it's arranged a path to reorganize with speed and aggression by shrinking its physical presence and reducing about $3 billion of funded debt. Joining me is corporate bankruptcy attorney Mark Indelicato, a partner at Thompson-Coburn. Mark, what can you tell us about WeWork's Chapter 11 restructuring plan?
4: So, as I understand it, although I haven't carefully studied the documents, what WeWorks is going to attempt to do is right-size the business. Uh, the first step is they've cut a deal with, I believe it's 98% of their secured lenders to convert a substantial amount of the secured debt to equity. They've begun the process of ridding themselves of leases that are a drain on the company, and it seems that they're going to look to right-size it to a profitable core and continue the business going forward.
2: WeWork is entering bankruptcy with a restructuring plan already hashed out with lenders in advance. Is that unusual?
4: You know, I guess I would say in today's day and age, I think it's becoming more common. I think what the companies and their lawyers are looking at is the quicker I can get through the bankruptcy process, the less the total amount of those restructuring costs will be there is a cost of running a bankruptcy and the sooner we get in and get out that leaves us more money to really put to the operations of the business so I think you know as time has gone on and the cost of the bankruptcies have increased I think more and more you're seeing that bankruptcies uh, they're trying to do them as quickly as possible but dealing with all the important issues while at it
2: so this year we were excited substantial doubt about its ability to stay in business following years of failing to turn a profit. So what makes Chapter 11 different for them?
4: Well, the, the primary objective for them of Chapter 11 is twofold. One, it gave them a platform to restructure with their secured lenders. Now, they could have done that, uh, given that they're a small group outside of bankruptcy. But I think the real power that WeWorks has now in bankruptcy is to deal with the landlords. Because to the extent there is a lease that's unprofitable or they don't want to continue in that particular market, the bankruptcy code gives them the ability to reject that lease. And to the extent they reject that lease, it becomes a prepetition unsecured claim. And so that will be dealt with in whatever the plan of reorganization is. But absent of bankruptcy, if you just decide to vacate a premises, you have to continue paying the rent. You're obligated under the lease. So it, it allows WeWork to free up substantial cash for the go-forward operations while resolving its lease issues uh, as prepetition claims, which generally get paid cents on the dollar.
2: Is this plan particularly aggressive, or is the timeline particularly tight?
4: Well, as I said before, I think they want to get in and out quickly. It is an aggressive timeline. There are a lot of players. There are a lot of issues that need to be gone through and quite honestly there are there are many locations i believe there's potentially 600 various we work locations throughout the country and so i suspect a lot of the work has been done already to identify the leases and the locations in which they're going to target but doing all of that and having it resolved by the end of march is aggressive it's in and out in 5 months for a case of this size where it's not just restructuring the secured debt is a lot to, to take on.
2: After bankruptcy, are they going to end up being a, a smaller company?
4: That's what they're projecting to the marketplace, at least from everything I've read. That seems to be what they're doing. It's, you know, when you when you look at it and you read it, people are attributing a lot of different reasons for WeWork's bankruptcy. And these types of businesses have been around, you know, for a long time. I believe it was in 2001, there was a company called H2 Global Workplaces that filed in Delaware, much smaller than WeWork, but had similar issues. And so I think what you're looking at is market conditions compounded by a pandemic, compounded by interest rates have, have required them to restructure their debt.
2: As WeWork decides, you know, which leases it wants to keep and which it wants to let go and negotiates... Is WeWorks in charge of that, or is the court looking at what they're doing as well?
4: So initially, WeWork is a debtor in possession. So they are the ones in charge initially. So they will make a plan to the court. A creditor's committee will be appointed. Based on the looks of it, it will be dominated by landlords for leases, which they probably have already abandoned. And they will work in unison to develop a plan and determine what the structure of the company would be going forward. The creditors, at least the creditors on the creditor's committee who are fiduciaries, their objective is to maximize the value uh, for the unsecured claims. And so they'll want to work with uh, WeWorks to try and maximize its value going forward in the hopes that the pre-petition creditors can uh, receive some of that value going forward.
2: What are some of the other advantages of bankruptcy that we haven't mentioned?
4: You put everything on hold, you know, the breathing spell for the debtor, that gives them the ability to really focus on operations while they're putting together a plan. So they no longer have to worry about, you know, dealing with particular landlords, dealing with uh, potential defaults, dealing with the interest payments on the debt, you're no longer on this roller coaster of will they file this month, will they not file this month. They could really focus all of their attention on making the company right and moving forward. And it really, you know, that breathing spell, and people don't necessarily recognize how important that is to have, have all of the uh, professionals, financial advisors, attorneys, And the senior management focusing on this one goal of restructuring and moving forward and developing a business plan. And so that's a tremendous benefit of bankruptcy.
2: Does any company ever now file for regular bankruptcy? All I ever hear of is Chapter
4: 11. So when people think of regular bankruptcy, they really think of Chapter 7. And what that means is the company or the individual comes to the bankruptcy court, says, I can't pay my debt. Here are all my assets, here are all my debts, I'm walking away, starting fresh, you deal with that. And generally in the business world, that is an oddity. It has happened and it does happen on occasion, but when you talk about a business reorganization or business bankruptcy, most of them start out in chapter 11. Some of them as a result of changes in the bankruptcy code are now utilizing the sort of modified chapter 11, which is called the new chapter 5 Subchapter five cases and that's for smaller cases. But most businesses come into bankruptcy with the hopes of either restructuring it and moving forward, or there's another process that's utilizing in bankruptcy, and that's the, the sale process under 363 of the bankruptcy code. And that allows a debtor To sell its assets free and clear of liens, and that is a tremendous benefit for debtors in possession because they get to attract a whole new set of buyers who may be interested in their assets, and they get to sell them free of liens. So whoever purchases the assets knows that whatever claims or liens existed, with some exceptions in the bankruptcy code, prior to the filing, they don't have to deal with.
2: I know this is probably an unfair question, but do you think that WeWorks will survive?
4: You know, so as I, as I said earlier, there was a company, HQ Global, and the way they survived is they ultimately, much smaller, they were sold to Regis, which was another one of these types of companies. I think there is a market for this business. I think, you know, WeWorks took it to a different level with the amenities. But if you look at what's going on in the real estate market in the major metropolitan areas throughout the country... Buildings are looking to add amenities to their space to get people to come back to work. So while they may have spent a lot of money to make this space grand, you know, it may actually provide a benefit in this new post-pandemic world, and they may survive. You know, it's all a matter of getting the debt under control and repricing the leases, you know. When you think about WeWorks, their inventory is their leases that they entered into. And the rumors are on the street that, you know, when they started this, they were entering it at the height of the rental market. And so they paid, you know, top dollar for the locations, And then they sort of added all of these amenities to them. But now, as the market has dropped, particularly post-pandemic, you can still only get what the market calls for right maybe they'll get a little premium because of the amenities but you know if their cost of their leases is greater than the market they're going to lose money no matter how good the business is
2: we saw the pandemic causing bankruptcies is that phase over with the bankruptcies from the pandemic this seems like it's one of them actually
4: i think this is one of them you know so in the bankruptcy community They expect there to be a lot more bankruptcies resulting from the pandemic. I did an article for ABI sort of looking at some of these things. When you push, you know, $3 trillion through the economy, that takes a lot of time to work its way through. And and so I think you're going to see more bankruptcies in the future for companies that have been struggling because they've hocked all that they can hock. Liquidity is, is drying up and interest rates are increasing, so the cost of capital is increasing. So I think you're going to see some more going forward. I don't know necessarily they're pandemic-related, except for the fact, if you want to say, that the government artificially kept interest rates lower in 19 and 20 and 21 because of the pandemic, and so we're having a much more rapid increase in interest rates than we might otherwise have had over the last five years. That may be pandemic-related, but I think this is partly a business cycle.
2: Thanks so much, Mark. That's Mark and Indelicato of Thompson-Coburn. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang.